Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Why are basic needs of people in the United States being held hostage by a Senate rule which is not even a law or in the Constitution? Faith leaders say the filibuster is immoral and speak out on Easter Monday. The filibuster has been used to block civil rights, labor rights, voting rights, living wages, health care access, especially for the poor and low wealth black, brown, white, Asian, and indigenous people. And more on that poison pill inserted into the proposed and highly promoted federal voting rights bill, the For the People Act, which will actually make it much harder for third parties to emerge and compete against our two corporate parties. Margaret Flowers talks about the poison pill, also U.S. sanctions that are killing people in other countries, and she has the latest on COVID in the U.S. Nicaragua, since the beginning of the pandemic, has had fewer than 7,000 cases and fewer than 200 deaths. My state of Maryland has 7,000 cases a week right now, and we've had over 8,000 deaths. All that and even more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, charged with murder and manslaughter in the death of George Floyd, remains the number one story in the news, even as the United States experiences more mass shootings this week, including in South Carolina on Wednesday and in Texas on Thursday. Chauvin's former boss, Minneapolis police chief Madeira Arredondo, made headlines this week when he disputed defense claims that Chauvin was just doing his job as he was trained to do it. Once Mr. Floyd had stopped resisting, and certainly once he was um, in distress and trying to verbalize that, that should have stopped. There's an initial reasonableness in trying to just get him under control over the, in the first few seconds. But, but uh, once there was no longer any resistance, and clearly when Mr. Floyd was no longer responsive, and even motionless, to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. Then on Thursday, Dr. Martin Tobin, a pulmonologist who specializes in how the body breathes, showed the jury the moment that George Floyd took his last breath because he said George Floyd was deprived of oxygen under the weight of not only Chauvin's knee, but under much of the weight of Chauvin's body and his equipment. Tobin, a witness for the prosecution, said the pressure was the equivalent of a surgeon cutting out George Floyd's lung. A healthy person subjected to what Mr. Floyd was subjected to would have died as a result of what he was subjected to. It was almost to the effect as if a surgeon had gone in and removed the lung. Tobin and other experts added that the widely discussed drugs in George Floyd's system were minimal and were in no way the cause of his death. 
And now for more on today's headlines, I'm joined by on the grounds geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History at African American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, I just wanted to first start with the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis. There has been very dramatic testimony all week. So what's your take uh, in terms of the trial this week? Well, it's apparent that the blue wall of silence has been breached. That is to say, police officers and chiefs standing in solidarity with an accused officer. Uh, That's the good news. Perhaps the questionable news is that the lawyers I talked to suggest that there might be saboteurs on this jury insofar as in terms of the questioning before they were selected to serve, some jurors had suggested that they did not know anything about this case, even though it's received round-the-clock coverage. And it's suspected, if history's any guide, that they'll try to tie up the jury and make it a hung jury and lead to a mistrial, uh, which could lead to another trial for Mr. Chauvin, but with a similar result. With regard to the experts, well, now we're hearing the prosecution experts. Within a week or so, we'll hear the defense experts. And once again, that can be very confusing to a lay jury uh, when you hear these conflicting and contrasting opinions. But I think that the overriding issue that comes out of this trial so far, as far as I can tell, is that it's George Floyd who's seemingly on trial. He's seemingly being blamed for his own death. And I think also that that feeds into the narrative that China constructed at the Alaska summit when it raised searching and profound questions about the nature of racism and white supremacy in the United States. And I'm afraid to say that a mistrial in the Derek Chauvin trial could feed that particular narrative. Well, here in D.C., we actually have another issue around justice and the history of racial injustice in this country. The Poor People's Campaign staged a rally really calling to task members of Congress for upholding the filibuster, which they called immoral. I think a few weeks ago, either Biden either quoting someone else or saying himself that it was a relic of Jim Crow. And so these activists are seeing the filibuster standing in the way of not only the current debate around gun laws or voting rights, but in terms of the whole agenda that they have for raising the minimum wage or other types of benefits, you know, health care, you know, student loans being recalculated or forgiven. So I just wanted to play a little clip from uh, Reverend Barber and get your comments about the history of the filibuster. Today we come because we as clergy pastors, imams, rabbis, people from the Hindu community and the Muslim community are challenging the immorality of the filibuster. We can no longer have an impoverished democracy because a minority group of senators want to shut down open debate and shut down bringing issues to the floor to address the critical issues that face us as a people in this nation. And we cannot have a system that actually is rooted in an ugly history. Now, many times when people talk about the filibuster, 
They talk about how it has been used to block civil rights legislation. and They frame it as a form of systemic racism. And that's true, but it's more than that. And it, and it's high time that we let the public know it's more than that. Anyway, that's a little bit of, of what he was saying as part of their Moral Mondays activity. So I thought of you when I heard them, you know, raising these aspects of history of the filibuster. Did you have any thoughts on that? Well, obviously the filibuster needs to go, but I'm pessimistic as to whether it will, not least because two leading members of the Democratic Senatorial Caucus apparently are opposed to tampering with the filibuster. I'm speaking of Senator Manchin of West Virginia, Senator Sinema of Arizona. Uh, Fortunately, the president, Mr. Biden, has taken a step forward. He's talked about bringing back the so-called talking filibuster, where you have to hold the floor for hours on end as the Dixiecrats, led by uh, Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, used to do back in the 1950s when they were trying to block civil rights legislation. But I'd also like to bring to your audience attention an op-ed that appeared in the L.A. Times a few days ago by Burt Newborn of NYU Law School and Erwin Chemerinsky of Berkeley Law School, where they suggested that the Vice President Harris could make a ruling from her chair that could radically circumscribe the use of the filibuster. They point to a president that took place in 1957 when then Vice President Richard M. Nixon did something similar. Now, I haven't seen any sort of reaction or response to that op-ed, but it's something that obviously needs to be debated and considered. Right. Well, Let's turn our attention to foreign affairs. So let's end with Ukraine. My understanding is that there have been several moves made by the Ukrainian government in terms of amassing troops in the kind of Russian-held area, the eastern part of Ukraine, that has, you know, basically it's Russian-speaking, it has a strong allegiance to Russia, and it has also banned several Russian-speaking publications or, or publications, media that is more favorable to Russia and is not so, you know, anti-Russia as the publications from Kiev. And finally, the U.S. is sending ships or some type of military personnel to the Black Sea. So what's happening there? Well, as you know, the United States has been arming the Ukrainians for some time now. The latest report, as you suggested, is that naval vessels from the U.S. Navy are headed towards the Black Sea, which is quite dangerous. Indeed, this entire situation seems to be spinning out of control. Uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine supposedly has applied to be a member of NATO, which would mean that if there is a conflict between Ukraine and Russia, that the United States would be bound by treaty to intervene. At the same time, President Zelensky, who's a a kind of dime store Kissinger, is headed to Turkey uh, within the next day or two to try to break and disrupt the relationship between Turkey and Russia, uh, which has been proven to be rather formidable in recent years. So it's a very dangerous situation, and I would hope that the hotheads in Washington can be restrained. Okay, well, well, I want to hope right along with you. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald.
Thank you. The killing of George Floyd and the resulting national uprising against racism continues to result in efforts at police reform at the state and local level. Chantal James attended an action in D.C. this week about policing in schools and filed this report. Ward 5 Representative and State Board of Education President Zachary Parker continued his ongoing community conversation series this week with a discussion on the call for police-free schools. The call to remove police from schools in the district has gained momentum in the wake of protests against police brutality and reconceptions of community safety sparked by the George Floyd protests last year. Parker invited Samantha Davis, Executive Director of Black Swan Academy, for a dialogue on the role of police in schools that included a youth perspective. Davis described the status quo of policing in D.C. schools and responded to Parker's question about the harm police in schools cause. The presence of police in schools is harmful for a number of reasons. One, because when it talks about investing in our community, it is literally taking investments away from our communities and from our schools. Like I mentioned before, $25 million in security, an additional $15 million in police. All of those dollars uh, could be spent in the already under-resourced schools that we have and could address the classroom disruption, the adolescent behavior, the trauma responses that police now are being called to the scene for. The other thing is we know historically policing and police, the institution of policing, there's no way around it. It's simply rooted in the oppression of Black people um, in this country. It's linked to slave patrols during slavery. It's linked to Jim Crow and the oppression of Black people. And we saw policing coming into our schools as a way to oppress young people's voices, particularly during the civil rights movement, when young people were demanding for more Black educators, for Black history to be taught. And instead of, similar to now, instead of being met with those, um, they were met with police officers. The conversation explored alternatives to policing in schools as it currently exists. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. And no doubt, the biggest school news this week in D.C. and around the country is the sudden death of Washington Teachers Union President Elizabeth Davis. Lydia Curtis filed this story. On April 4th, 2021, Easter Sunday, Washington Teachers Union President Elizabeth Davis died in a two-vehicle car crash on Route 301 in Bowie, Maryland. Waves of shock rippled through the D.C. public school community of teachers, parents, and administrators as they learned of Ms. Davis's sudden death. Ms. Davis was a fierce and outspoken advocate for teachers in the District of Columbia, which stemmed from her love of DC public school students. A teacher for four decades, Davis was elected to one of the city's most powerful labor positions in 2013 and spent the last year leading the 4,000 member union through the daunting challenges of a COVID-19 pandemic. Born in North Carolina, Davis's mother, a waitress, moved her family to D.C. to access better opportunities. Davis attended her local public schools and graduated from Eastern High School, where she staged a successful walkout 
protesting the lack of African-American history in the school curriculum. According to an April 7th article in the Washington Informer, in the days before her death, Davis remained in the battle with DCPS about proposed budget cuts that would significantly reduce the teaching staff at about 50 schools east of the river. She also had plans to hold education officials accountable to the findings of an auditor's report that pointed to the Office of the State Superintendent of Education's delinquency in collecting student data. One of the last meetings Ms. Davis had was with substitute teachers who were in a discussion with the Chancellor's Office to bring about much-needed improvement in their working conditions. I spoke with Karen Daniels, a 30-year veteran D.C. public schools teacher. She did a lot of the organizing, protesting, marching, showing up on the front line, out in the field. She would organize caravans to go to the mayor's house to protest in front of schools. And with the last episode with the pandemic, since the closing of schools, she was very, 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 very courageous in making sure that the guidelines were met. And she was, I would say, 80 to 90, 90% responsible for teachers' rights being respected and honored by the law, and she would not back down. She, mm-hmm. she might have even fallen out with the superintendent and the mayor in terms of they clashed a lot. But she would get an outside arbitrator. She had the president of the American Federation of Teachers come in, she would make sure that the voices of the teachers were heard and that students were going to be safe, as well as teachers, inside and outside the classroom with impact evaluation. The same thing. She stood up to that system that was created um, by Michelle Reed many, many years ago, and it was on its way out. But there were many, many cases that resulted in her um, pushing forward for teachers to have fair and equitable evaluations through the impact system. I wouldn't be where I am right now without her advocacy. We end this piece with the voice of Elizabeth Davis speaking to Thomas Olvark mid-pandemic on a previous On the Ground show. Our teachers are amazing and very resilient know how to take anything and turn it into something. But the pandemic basically required that our schools be closed, and that was the smart decision. I'm glad that the school system leaders and the mayor decided to do that. Teachers had to transition very instantly from brick-and-mortar teaching to distance learning, a process that they were not accustomed to doing. And they used their spring break to learn how to use the platform that they had to learn to use when school reopened a week later. So it was not like they had a break, but they basically went on and did what they needed to do. However, it was extremely challenging for teachers. Teachers were teaching from their living rooms, from their kitchens. They basically created lessons, uh, video conference lessons. They had to help parents uh, adapt to using devices. And, of course, in many instances, we knew there were students who did not have devices. So we had to work to to tackle uh, the school system to get those devices to students because we know that the digital divide and a lot of other inequities still exist in our school system. And of course, this pandemic did not reveal these inequities. They simply magnified them. So we are now trying to address them, but we still have a way to go. 
and teachers have been extreme, you know, they've been resilient. But a lot of the, the conditions that existed during that distance learning phase, not having the professional development they needed in order to understand how to deliver virtual teaching, uh, learning how to use platforms with guidelines that were changing from week to week, uh, they, were ma they managed to get through it anyhow. But they do not want to reopen with those same constraints and same challenges. And they certainly do not want us to reopen our schools as much as teachers have expressed the need to get back to in-person teaching, they also have expressed the need for us to do so safely in a way that's going to be safe for students and a way for, that's going to be safe for teachers and other school workers. Rest in power, President Elizabeth Davis. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. Everyone here at On the Ground mourns the death of Elizabeth Davis, who participated with so many actions for social justice that we've covered over the years. I remember August of last year at the Brentwood Post Office, a main post office here in D.C., Liz rallying in support of postal workers and against the dismantling and destruction of the post office by the Trump administration. So, again, we join teachers, labor unions, and anyone touched by Liz in celebrating her life. We will be sure to announce details on services when they are released, and for the latest, you can connect directly with the Washington Teachers Union at WTULocal6.net. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. I'm the director of the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice, and the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And it's an honor to be here in Washington, D.C., in the nation's capital, making holy trouble. We want to hear first a welcome, a note of welcome from Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, interim senior pastor of this church that we're gathered in front of, National City Christian Church here in Washington, D.C., who's going to welcome us to this space, welcome us to this city where we're going to keep on making this holy trouble, keep on defending our democracy, keep on speaking out against the, the filibuster and for voting rights and for health care and for living wages and for everything that everybody in this society needs to thrive. So Reverend Dr. Amy Butler, thank you so much for welcoming us here and now welcome us even more to the program. Thanks. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome especially to the steps of National City Christian Church. 
on this Easter Monday. As people of faith and good conscience, we are gathered here to do the critical and important work of justice in our communities. It is a mandate of our faith and of our conscience, and we are delighted to be here causing holy trouble and joining together to call for justice in our country. You are welcome in this holy place. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. And, and we want to, we have a couple of other faith leaders that are going to help welcome us here, speak to the program here. And then we will, as, as a diverse grouping of people from across Washington, D.C. and other parts of the country. But before we get to that, a pastor, a reverend who has, has done a lot of holy troublemaking here in the city and all across the country, I, I want to introduce Reverend Graylin Hagler to, right. to speak with us today. Yay. Thank you, Reverend Liz. First thing I want to do is for us to just pause for one moment because Liz Davis, who was president of the Washington Teachers Union, was killed last night in an automobile accident. And she was one of those dynamic leaders that also was very supportive of the Poor People's Campaign, locally as well as nationally. If we could just join in that moment of silence for a moment. Amen. And I lift up the spirit of Liz because Liz was someone who was truly concerned about democracy. Democracy taking place here in Washington, D.C., as well as democracy across the country. And as I preached yesterday in terms of Resurrection Sunday, it was not lost on me that it was the anniversary of the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Something that we didn't hear a lot about yesterday. But the fact is, is that that life was a life that was lived trying to open up democracy, trying to open up citizen participation, trying to open up the truth. And so what we're here today about is standing up as people of goodwill, people of conscience and people of faith, saying that we are called to enlarge democracy and this tactic of the filibuster basically tries to silence democracy. And so we're not interested in being silenced, but we're interested in having the most important vital and economic and sociological and ecological issues debated, discussed in our time and lifted up to paramount importance. So we're not about shrinkage of democracy, but we're about its enlargement, its increase, that voices might be heard, that agendas might be addressed. I was speaking to Reverend Barber, and I was reminding him that not only was the filibuster used to basically protect pro-slavery forces in this country, but resolution after resolution was passed in the U.S. Congress before the Civil War that basically outlawed any representative from mentioning slavery whatsoever in the Congress of the United States, that they could be censored. And so one of the things that we're battling against is that continued spirit of fascism. Fascism that does not want to be held accountable. Fascism that does not want people to participate in the political process. Fascism that does not want to have us debate the kinds of issues that are important for life, for liberty, and for hope. So today we stand.
immoral filibuster cannot block democracy. And all of us, we agree on that. Amen. Thank you. Indeed, we cannot filibuster democracy. And so we're here as people of faith, people of conscience from across this city and across this country, making sure that our voices are heard as we stand for justice, as we stand for voting rights, as we stand for living wages, and as we call on our senators to do the right thing, to stop blocking, to stop passing policies that oppress the poor. The leaders that are gathered here represent thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across this country. And the next speaker I want to bring up, Jim Winkler, is the President and Secretary General of the National Council of Churches in Christ, representing Christians all over this country, all over this land, who say we need justice now. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Reverend Liz, and thank you to the Poor People's Campaign for bringing us together. You know, the United States Senate is free to set its own rules, but we who vote for the senators insist the Senate must not let those rules stop them from doing our work. The filibuster is one of those old rules that keeps the Senate from getting its job done. The filibuster was long used by avowed racists who wielded it as a weapon over and over again to kill any progress to secure voting rights and civil rights for people of color in this nation. The filibuster is a symbol and tool of white supremacy. It must never again be used to block even the opening of debate on a bill. It must never again be used to obstruct the final vote on the Senate floor. The filibuster must never again be used as a threat in order to kill legislation. It is a cowardly tactic designed to forestall progress for the good of the nation. Limiting debate to a reasonable period is common sense. We elect our senators to exercise common sense. We elect our senators to play a constructive role in addressing the needs of our people and of our nation. The filibuster is used to expressly stop fair consideration of critical legislation. Nowhere in the Constitution does it say the Senate needs 60 votes in order to advance major legislation. I'm all in favor of bipartisanship, and I want the Senate to craft rules that will further such efforts, but maintaining an anti-democratic filibuster is not the means to such ends. There are other ways to foster bipartisanship. For example, let's reduce the power of money in Senate races and in all political campaigns. Yes. There's no reason rich people and corporations should get to spend whatever they want. If our senators aren't spending an inordinate amount of time raising money for their campaigns, they should have more time to sit down with together and with us to address the issues of the day. Today, the filibuster is part of a toxic stew that is poisoning our public life. We don't just need to address the anti-democratic nature of the filibuster, which has long permitted the most reactionary forces in our society to perpetuate racism, slavery, and poverty. We have to go further and come up with creative ways to modernize the Senate. 
Perhaps, for example, it should be enlarged so that millions and millions of Americans who are underrepresented in the Senate have their voice heard and their votes counted. And we need to find ways that foster free and healthy and fair debate without permitting hate speech and conspiracy mongering to have outsized voices. Let's deal forthrightly with hate speech in politics and on the internet, in television and radio. Once your, your speech and your Twitter and your broadcast result in the storming of the Capitol or in hate crimes or in gun violence, then you must face justice. Right. There must be consequences. The House of Representatives has already passed important legislation to empower and strengthen protections for workers expand access to voting rights and bolster our democracy, protect the rights of LGBTQ people, hold law enforcement accountable in the wake of systemic racism, enact common sense gun violence prevention legislation, and reform our immigration system. House consideration of legislation to protect our environment and raise the minimum wage is anticipated soon. This legislation is going to make its way to the Senate the Senate must do its job and stop using outmoded rules to hold up progress. That's right. Thank you. You just heard the Reverend Jim Winkler, President and General Secretary of the National Council of Churches, and before him the Reverend Greyland Hagler, Senior Minister at the Plymouth Congregational United Church of Christ in D.C., and the segment began with the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, and Reverend Amy Butler, interim senior minister at the National City Christian Church in Northwest D.C., where the rally of faith leaders and the Poor People's Campaign was held on the steps on Easter Monday. More about their campaign to eliminate the Senate filibuster is at poorpeoplescampaign.org. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. 
And now I'm joined by Dr. Margaret Flowers. She's a pediatrician and veteran human rights activist who is co-founder of the website Popular Resistance. She also hosts the show Clearing the Fog on Pacifica Radio and is national coordinator of the Health Over Profit for Everyone campaign. She's been on the front lines for local, national, and international campaigns for health care, economic, and environmental justice. Welcome back to the show, Margaret. Thank you for having me, Esther. Well, I'm going to talk to you as someone active in the Green Party, as a doctor, and also as just a longtime human rights activist internationally. So I want to start with the process of electoral politics in this country. I'm sure you know that Georgia passed a super voter suppression law and similar bills are being considered in Texas and in most of the states. It's, it's almost like right on time. There's legislation being considered in Congress right now, the For the People Act. And it's become very urgent because of all these voter suppression bills being considered around the country. And anyway, so important provisions in the bill will protect voting rights and voting access, but some provisions will also make it more difficult for third parties to grow and compete, you know, against the two corporate parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. For example, this act quintuples the amount of money green presidential campaigns will be required to raise to qualify for federal matching funds from $5,000 in each of 20 states to $25,000 per state. And then also there is a part of the bill that will eliminate the cap that like say party bosses can inject into each campaign. And so before maybe the the limit was, was $5,000 and now it's like like $2 million or something like it's, it's, it's a tremendous amount. But anyway, so I know that you ran for the U S Senate from Maryland in 2016 and you remain active in the green party. So I wanted to first ask you about the impact of this legislation and what the green party is doing to fight back. Thank you. It's, it's very concerning. And I'm sure your listeners are aware that the United States is at best a flawed democracy. That's, you know, what it's considered by the global community. And since the founding, really, you know, we've had two major capitalist pro-war parties, and they are the ones who make the rules so that they can stay in power. And it's always been a struggle for outside parties uh, to try to get established and to make any headway in, in winning office in this system. Fortunately, you know, we do have made headway at the local level, but breaking into the national level is much harder. And so HR1, SB1 is just another example of saying one thing and actually being another because it does really impact the ability of when we run presidential candidates to be able to get funds, matching funds, which we've been able to do, you know, in the last number of elections. I know both of Jill Stein's elections in 2012 and 2016 and Howie Hawkins in 2020, they were able to meet the criteria to get federal matching funds. And that was significant. That gave them much more resources to be able to run the campaign and organize in the various states. And so this would really raise the level to achieve that to something that's really difficult because we are the Green Party is a, it's not a corporate party. It doesn't take money from PACs or corporations. And so it's really individual donations. I know Senator Sanders was able to do well with individual donations, but he also had the Democratic Party 
database of tens of millions of people so that, you know, we don't have that level of access to people. So this really is just another kind of piece that's going to continue to lock down our process by these two major parties, to continue to keep our political system dominated by money and to put more hurdles in place for us to be able to to make a challenge to that. So the Green Party has a petition. We're educating people about what's in it in this legislation. Members of the party are contacting their members of Congress and trying to push them to change this. Has any champion emerged that you know of who is willing to basically fight for a party other than their own to be able to participate fairly in elections? Not that I'm aware of. You know, and I actually met with Congressman John Sarbanes back in 2019 after this legislation was first introduced, and he was one of the main proponents of it. He's my Congress member. And he's like, oh, no, I wasn't aware of that. And so I made him aware, but yet when they reintroduced it, they kept that provision in. So I don't think that we can really expect them to be friendly towards other parties that would actually be their competition. I mean, their practice has really been to put more obstacles in place rather than creating a democracy. Like, for example, when I was down in Venezuela in December for the elections, they had 107 political parties participating in their National Assembly Hmm. election. They have very low hurdles to participation because they support democracy. But the U.S., from the founding and from the Constitution, has been anti-democratic. It's afraid of the power of the people. Mm -hmm. So that's where we are. You know, there is a need. There is a definite need for voter protections. And, you know, in light of all these really draconian bills in states that are obviously targeted at the black community, the brown community, young voters, college students. You can see how people would rally around the legislation, the For the People Act. But it's been disturbing to first know about this poison pill in the legislation, but then see the legacy of the civil rights movement, of civil rights martyrs used to advocate for the legislation when at the same time it's actually cutting back on people's voting rights. I just would like, you know, through this show, you know, to let more people know about this provision and maybe let more people know how they can contact their, you know, encourage them to contact their elected officials to say, hey, you know, why does this even have to be in there? Why does this part even have to be in there? It seems like the Green Party is obviously targeted. And given how Jill Stein was treated, how Ajamu Baraka was treated, how Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker were treated in terms of being a impediment to democracy as opposed to being active participants in democracy, as is their very right. So... As I mentioned, I'm, I have to switch subjects, really hard pivots and, you know, have you put on different hats. And why don't we talk about next, since you mentioned your trip to Venezuela, why don't we talk about that? Because it's a natural segue to talk about how different their election was that you observed. I also think you made a number of interesting observations in terms of other rights, like land rights and how they're able to basically survive under these U.S. sanctions and having control over their own food supply and to be able to feed themselves. 
Right. Yeah, so I was in Venezuela in December, but I just got back from Nicaragua. So you observed the election in Venezuela, but I want to follow up with you about your recent trip to Nicaragua. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the the trip to Nicaragua was our first delegation as the Sanctions Kill Coalition. This is a coalition that came together at the end of 2019 to really try to get the United States to stop its economic war on countries around the world. It's being waged against 39 countries, a third of the world's population. I should say, I should just break in and say that the link between Venezuela and Nicaragua is that they are both targeted by sanctions and targeted in other ways by the U.S. government. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, Mm -hmm. no, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua are considered by the United States foreign policy establishment to be what they call the Troika of Tyranny, which is really amazing because these are three countries that are being punished because they actually put in place a revolution to create socialist governments that empower the people that meet their basic needs and they're refusing to be controlled by the United States, which offends the U.S. because our foreign policy is that Latin America is our backyard and we should be able to do whatever we want there. So there's a huge connection between them, a lot of similarities, and Venezuela is really hurting right now from the economic war. Cuba, of course, has been suffering for decades, 60 years now. In just a one-year period, they lost $5 billion of revenue because of the U.S.'s economic war, which is an astounding figure for a tiny island nation. Nicaragua is the largest country in Central America and, of course, has a long history of the U.S. trying to dominate it and then overthrowing the Somoza dictatorship in 1979 and then facing more years of U.S. military aggression and economic aggression. But they've put in place an amazing system. There's so much to talk about there. They have universal free health care. They have universal free education through the college level that even in very rural communities, the children have schools to go to. They have health centers in all of these communities. They redistributed the land back into the hands of the people away from 80% of the land was in the hands of 5% of the people and they changed that and so over 25 years they've built this you know, food sovereignty where they're now producing 90% of the food that they consume and then they're exporting food as well they've also in the last like 15 years they've brought electricity and running water to households throughout the country. I think it's now 98% of households that have electricity. Hmm. And these are like very rural communities, way up in mountains and things like that. And most of their energy, 75% is produced from renewable resources. So all of these things do put them in a pretty good position, at least to try to meet their basic needs, despite Mm -hmm. the U.S.'s economic war. But it is having an impact on them because it's preventing them from being able to get the capital that they need to continue to expand their project. Wow. So I know you've written a lot about the trip. And so if people want to read more about it, they can uh, read your posts. Are they at popularresistance.org? Yes. Yes. I wrote uh, two newsletters about it at popularresistance.org and also did a uh, Clearing the Fog podcast interview with some of the people down there. So people can definitely check those out. Okay, well, finally, I wanted to give our listeners uh, a little bit of an update in terms of your perspective on what's happening here in terms of fighting the pandemic. 
maybe a good way to segue into our my last topic is to talk about how Nicaragua has been able to overcome these sanctions and still deal with the pandemic. A lot of these countries that are, you know, underdeveloped, they've done better than the United States. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's night and day down there. It was amazing to be there for the 15 days because they were very proactive. A month before they had their first case, they started getting into gear. And they do have universal health care there, free. But they mobilized 98,000 volunteers to go door to door and talk to families and make sure that they understood what the virus was, how to protect themselves, to make sure that everybody had masks and hand sanitizer and things like that. They didn't shut down because their economy is so dependent on people being able to work each day in their farms and in their stores. But people, you know, you don't go into a store without a mask. They've done a lot of testing. And they also did a lot of work to, to make sure that people coming into the country weren't bringing the disease into the country. And so I compare them to my state, Maryland, which has a similar population of about 6 million people. Nicaragua, since the beginning of the pandemic, has had fewer than 7,000 cases and fewer than 200 deaths. My state of Maryland has 7,000 cases a week right now, and actually we're rising because the governor opened things back up, and so now we're rising again, and we've had over 8,000 deaths. So, you know, it's a huge difference, and it's what you get when you have a country that prioritizes public health, and the population, because they're active in the government, they're building the revolution themselves, they remember what it was like beforehand when they didn't have these things, so they're very supportive, and they really have a sense of solidarity and trust that we don't have in their system so that they take steps to protect themselves and others. Wow. So you've kind of made the transition to my last question very easy because I just wanted to, before we uh, wrap up, uh, get your perspective on what's happening right now in the United States since you've come back. You know, the Biden administration has really ramped up the distribution of vaccines And at the same time, there are these, as you mentioned, many governors opening up their states. And on top of that, there are new variants circulating. And in many places, the case numbers are rising. Yeah, I mean, overall in the country, the cases are rising, particularly in some of the states, you know, like Michigan and New York, Florida. I think that there's been some good and some not good. I mean, It's great that we're getting more vaccines out there and getting more people vaccinated. I think we're starting to see more of a recognition that many of the more vulnerable communities, and we're seeing huge disparities in COVID-19 between black and brown communities versus white communities. So, you know, starting to try to address making sure that vaccines are getting to the people who need them the most. But the United States is actively participating in this global apartheid of the rich nations buying up the vaccines and not being willing to release the patent information for these vaccines so that poorer countries can have access to them. So particularly countries in the global south, many of them have not even been able to start vaccinating. That puts us, everyone in the world, at risk because these variants will continue to emerge as long as there are places in the world where the virus is going to proliferate. I think the major cause of the cases right now in the U.S. is the U.K. variant, which is highly infectious and more lethal. And so we're still not doing what we need to be doing in terms of providing testing, tracing, making sure that people can quarantine, making sure that people have what they need in terms of health care and economic support. 
these things are not being done. And so we're just going to continue to cook along, continue to have cases. The current people at the CDC are warning us that this current surge could really get big again. So the United States is, you know, is still not doing what needs to be done to combat the pandemic. And experts at the CDC are warning that we may even see a huge surge like we did earlier in the United States because of these variants. There was an interesting study that was just done looking at the countries that took a zero COVID approach and showed that they have actually done the best in terms of economically and health-wise, but the U.S. is taking this haphazard approach, and that's just going to drag this out and continue to cause disease and loss of life. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely keep checking with you as the pandemic continues to get your perspective, because some of the things that you're talking about, you know, it's the same things we talked about a year ago. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, the, the United States doesn't have a public health system. So all of these things that other countries have done to control the pandemic by testing, looking for outbreaks, and then taking steps to contain those outbreaks, we just don't even have a coordinated system that's doing that here in the United States. And that's why things are going to continue to cook along. It's going to hurt our health. It's going to hurt our economy and hurt us overall as a nation. Okay. Well, I know that you have your hands full <laughs> there. <laughs> so I've been speaking with Dr. Margaret Flowers, pediatrician, veteran human rights activist, and friend of the show. Thank you for joining me today, Margaret. Thank you for having me. And that's it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to this show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On the Ground Show. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averam, is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included Cloud Blue by Isaiah Roussan and Shalala by the Either Orchestra. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show 
where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.